Hi everyone, I'm Emma. And I'm Helena, and we both work at the Emma's Trust. Uh, and as you might have heard before, we're recording this over Zoom because of coronavirus and social distancing. So apologies if the sound is a bit iffy at any stage. Please bear with us. We'd like to welcome you to our latest podcast, Multiple Sclerosis, Breaking It Down, and this episode on HSCT. HSCT has featured quite heavily in the media recently with celebrities like actress Selma Blair even sharing her experience in the, in the documentary Introducing Selma Blair. But what exactly does this group of letter mean? Um, so luckily we've got Claire, the Head of Information and Engagement here with us today and she's going to explain a little bit more about this. Hi Claire. Hi Emma and Helena. So HSCT, it stands for Hemopoietic Stem Cell Transplantation. And it's also known as AHSCT, and that extra A at the beginning just stands for autologous. And that means that the stem cells that are used in the treatment are obtained from the same individual. So they are, in fact, your own stem cells. So HSCT or AHSCT can be used in all kinds of um, treatments for different conditions, including cancer and, of course, multiple sclerosis. And the aim is essentially to reboot your body's immune system so it no longer attacks your myelin or causes inflammation in your brain and spinal cord which is quite revolutionary, really, when you think about it. Mm. Um, what, they, what, what the treatment does, they aim to, they use quite high doses of chemotherapy to um, largely wipe out your existing immune system. And then they rebuild it with fresh stem cells, which have been collected from your blood. It's an, an amazing treatment, really. Um, so thanks, Claire. And, and as you know, with MS, no two people's HSCT experience will be identical. Uh, but we've been lucky enough to speak with two different guests who both received the transplantation. Um, so let's hear from them and what they have to say. First up is Chris, who had HSCT on the NHS in Plymouth. Hi, Chris. It's lovely to speak with you today. Um, are, you able, are you able to start off by just telling us a little bit about the start of your MS journey and include things like your initial symptoms and your diagnosis? Yeah, yeah, of course. So uh, MS, the journey sort of began about 15 years ago. I was 21 uh, and I was doing a PGCE. So I was, I was quite young comparatively. Um, and one day I woke up and I couldn't walk straight. So I just sort of was walking sideways. It was like I was drunk all the time. Um, and other things. So I would slur speech. Uh, and I started to notice my memory wasn't very good. Uh, and I had a slight sort of blurring of vision. Uh, initially, uh, I didn't really have any clue or understanding of what it was. Uh, I went to the doctor quite a few times, went to the GP. Uh, and they told me I had a middle ear infection. Uh, I think all in all over the period of like a month, I went maybe five times. Uh, and I got to the point where I was kind of thinking that there must be something psychologically wrong with me. Like if I've been to the GP this many times and they didn't think it was anything real or anything significant. Is there something, something wrong in my head that's making me behave this way? Um, and it was only when I went to go and see a locum doctor and my wife, who was a student nurse at the time, uh, suggested to them that I might have an MRI, that they, they put me forward for that. Uh, and then I had a lumbar puncture, the MRI, and then obviously diagnosed with clinically isolated syndrome. And then it was about 18 months later, I had uh, first relapse and official MS diagnosis. Um, so if you hadn't sort of heard of MS before then, what were some of the initial thoughts and feelings that you had when you were given that diagnosis? Uh, I had heard of it a little bit, uh, not a huge amount. I mean, it's not uh, culturally prevalent as something that people are hugely aware of. Um, there's no sort of, there, there are obviously famous people that have got it and it's in the public consciousness to a degree, but it's not like a number of other conditions. So I knew a little bit. My extent, uh, my, the extent of my knowledge was uh, that President Bartlett on the West Wing had MS. Uh, and that was everything I knew about it, really. 
Um, so when I got the diagnosis, to be honest with you, I was kind of, I, I was kind of shocked. Obviously, I expected it after clinically isolated syndrome. They say there's a very good chance you'll end up having a relapse and being diagnosed with MS. Um, but when they actually told me, I, I didn't really have much reaction to it initially. My wife, well, the guy girlfriend at the time, my my wife, who she would become, um, reacted a lot more strongly. Obviously, she'd worked with people who were older and who had been through uh, MS for a lot longer and were much further down their journey who were sort of quite considerably disabled. And so she was quite worried about it. But I was kind of numb initially, or at least I thought I was. Uh, and it turned out I was, I, I hadn't really realized, I didn't only really realize it on reflection. Um, it kind of spun me quite a bit for about a year afterwards. Um, and it was only, it took that kind of amount of time to kind of come to the term with it and where I might end up and where I was statistically likely to end up. Um, and I, yeah, I, did, I don't think I dealt with it especially well, but I dealt with it fairly quietly. Yeah, I've heard that um, a few times recently, people saying that their reaction was perhaps smaller than some of the people around them because maybe they know more or things like that. Yeah, yeah, that was it. There wasn't a huge, there wasn't a huge, there were no big sort of, oh, no, I've got this. Uh, I remember telling my mum and telling my mum and my sister, and I didn't tell them for like a couple of months, actually, to be honest. I didn't, I didn't say anything to them because by this point, the relapses were kind of done. My, my mum had had um, like a, a stroke, which was kind of the stress of that. It's kind of what set off the first relapse. So I didn't want to tell her. I didn't want to make her more stressed. She was only just home at that point. Um, but when I did tell them, they both kind of had a bit of a worried meltdown. They sort of cornered my wife and started asking her questions and stuff. And I think for a lot of people with MS, or at least I assume so, managing other people's worries and concerns about it is something I'm more, I, in a lot of ways, I'm more concerned about than, than my reaction to it. Um, so going back to you personally, what are some of the symptoms that you commonly experience as someone with MS? And are there any things which you find might improve or make the symptoms worse? So some people, for example, uh, find that heat can change their symptoms or things like that. Yeah. So uh, in terms of my symptoms, uh, outside of relapse, I've been quite quite a lot of relapse is quite fast. Um, but I'm quite fortunate in that the, they haven't been huge, like, really, really big. So the highest I've been in terms of on the EDSS score is 4.5. Uh, and that was the relapse when I got diagnosed for H, uh, when I got referred for HSCT. Um, outside of that, I'm a sort of 1.5 to 2. Um, so currently, uh, I get sort of numbness in my feet, uh, specifically my big toe on my left foot, uh, numbness in my hands. That's always there. Uh, my memory is the biggest one. My wife says it's like living with somebody who has early onset dementia, um, which is I'm, I'm blissfully unaware. I, I, in my head, I remember everything appropriately as somebody of, of, a, of 35 years should. But she assures me that it's pretty terrible, um, which is the biggest frustration for everyone around me. Uh, in terms of what makes it worse, um, drinking. So if I go on a night out, uh, I'll have not only a normal sort of mid-30s hangover, but also an MS hangover for a few days afterwards. Uh, coordination won't be very good. Um, that kind of thing. Memory be worse. Fatigue, that kind of stuff. Uh, and in terms of what makes it worse overall, I mean, drinking is sort of sharp spikes, but stress. So um, I do weddings over the summer um, and I work a lot of freelance stuff. And during that time, it's quite busy, quite stressful. Um, that will tend to bring on more symptoms. Uh, and then when things calm down again, that tends to go away. Heat will do something, uh, fatigue, but I'm not as badly affected by heat as I know that some other people are. Um, so you sort of mentioned your HSCT referral. Before we get oh. on to that, um, did your MS team discuss any DMD options with you? I think I read um, in the bio of one of your YouTube videos about you trying Lemtrada. Is that right? Yeah, we mean like way back in the beginning, the things I tried. Yeah, so, yeah. Sorry, looking back a while ago now, I guess. Yeah, no, no. So, so way, way back and back. Um, the first things I were offered the DMDs, uh, I was given like pamphlets 
uh, stuff from pharmaceutical companies about uh, Avonex, Rebif, and something, Capaxone. Uh, and I agonized over what I wanted to do for quite a while. In the end, I think I went with Rebif, so injectable three times a week. Um, sort of, you know, the, the flu, and anybody watching, I imagine, would know the flu-like symptoms and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I went on to Avonex, uh, similar efficacy rates, you know, 33% reduction in relapses. Uh, and then after I failed on that twice, um, they referred me for Lemtrada. So I did two rounds of Lemtrada uh, and then failed about eight months after the second round. And that, at that point, I was given the choice. Um, HSCT, which my MS nurse um, wasn't like hugely okay with, but my wife, obviously nurse, had researched an awful lot. Um, a choice of HSCT or the third round of Lemtrada. And I opted for a third round of Lemtrada, failed again. And then it was kind of like, well, there's no, there's not really any other choices. Mm -hmm. I could do that or I could do um, the, the monthly infusion. So, but, but yeah, it was HSCT seemed like the, the most heavyweight option, given that I'd obviously failed in Lentrada. Statistically, I was told with Lentrada that, you know, it's an 80% reduction in relapses over five or 10 years. You know, the, my, my neuro who was involved in the first study for Lentrada um, told me that, you know, it, it, you know, I had very, very high hopes for it and that didn't really pan out. So uh, presented with HSCT as the choice. I, I played it safe, went with Lentrada one more time. When that failed, I kind of felt like I only really had that option left. Yeah, so you'd sort of given it a fair go with all the other options first. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I know that there's discussions about whether or not it should be offered as a first-line treatment. You know, you uh, approach it aggressively and try to it, sort of intervene before disability and onset of symptoms becomes more permanent. Uh, but as it was for me, yeah, it, yeah last chance to learn type thing. So you mentioned that your wife knew um, quite a lot about HSCT and she'd done some of the research for you. Um, was that sort of where you'd first heard about it or where did, was it from your, your doctor's mentioning and suggestion of it? Uh, wife, my wife told me about it first. Okay. Um, and she, she'd done quite a bit of research. I don't know how long it's been around as a treatment, um, but I'm, I'm aware that it now it's becoming more prevalent, but it has been around in place in terms of clinical trials for a while. And my wife finds like clinical trials and those kinds of um, journal articles quite interesting. So she's looked into it quite a bit. Uh, I mean, around the same time that I was first talking about it, I think if memory serves, there was the, you know, that Panorama program, Can You Cure My MS? Which I never actually saw, even though, even though it, was, it was relevant to me at the time. I, I, th I think I kind of subconsciously chose not to watch it. Um, but by the time I had chosen to do HSCT and I wanted to watch it, it, it was, it was already gone, but yeah, no, my wife was the one to tell me about it first. Um, obviously with it being a more risky treatment, I think it's something that maybe a lot of professionals who've been in, uh, sort of MS care for a while, are maybe more reticent to recommend, um, in terms of risk benefit, that kind of thing. I don't think they push it and maybe don't know as much about it as perhaps they do other treatments that have been around for a lot longer. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true sometimes, isn't it? Um, so where did she sort of find some of that information? Do you know any of the resources or was it just sort of a scout on Google and things? I think it, I, 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 mean, I don't know entirely. So um, my uh, my capacity to interpret those kinds of medical journals is quite limited, um, but my wife generally gives me the abridged version. She she printed off loads of stuff. So she went into work and she had like, off like 20 articles looking at the benefits of HSCT and comparing it to other DMDs. Uh, and she gave it to me to read which I didn't, but she did give me the summary uh, when we had a discussion later on. I don't know where she looked. Um, obviously, being a nurse uh, and she she has access, I assume, to those kinds of medical journals that perhaps most people wouldn't immediately find on a quick Google search. But I'm afraid I, I don't know. I'm very sorry. 
um, yeah some people are just like really medically minded aren't they and they can kind of take in all that information and they know what it means but yeah I can't do that either yeah, no, she, 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 it, I'm, I, it's a real benefit. I'm, and I'm fully aware that most people don't have the advantage of a nurse wife, you know, mm. uh, and I said this, I said this in the blog and I said this an awful lot over the last oh, 15 years of having MS. If it were me, I'm I'd, like a head in the sand, forward going horse. I'll just trudge forward, just sort of plodding forward and, and enduring or going through whatever happens and making the best of whatever information I get. I probably wouldn't have sought out as much as I should have. I'm aware that a lot of people with MS become their own sort of advocate and they do a huge amount of research. Um, I don't know whether it's a subconscious thing or whether I'm just really lazy, but I don't tend to do that because I have the advantage of a wife to explain it all to me. So she explains, um, sort of, like I said, the efficacy and the comparisons and the way that the methodology of the treatment varies in some places to another. I forget what the, the shorthand for it is, a, is a myoblasive, a non-myoblasive. Yeah, there's two different kinds of HSCT and the way in which they approach the chemo and she explained the sort of the efficacy differences for those two. So, yeah, I had the benefit of all that information that and the and the, the, the benefit isn't just being given the information. I imagine a lot of people get that from neuro. She knew that she had to explain it in very, very simple terms for me to understand it uh, and to explain it again and again and again. And as I say, I don't think a lot of people would get that. Yeah, that's really handy. Um, so obviously HSCT is quite a divisive subject. People have really strong opinions um, on it one way or the other. Um, what were some of the things that you had to consider when you thought about having the treatment? So a uh, number of things. So I was I was fortunate enough to be employed. I do a lot of freelance work, um, but I also have a job teaching. So knowing that there was going to be time off work was a concern uh, in terms of my colleagues and stuff like that. But that that was something that was fairly covered financially. I mean, I think I imagine for most people, um, the biggest concern is family. Those people around you that are going to have to uh, continue on with life while you're up in hospital and are going to have to rearrange their entire life around you in hospital for sort of four to six weeks. Um, I know that in the UK, and I had the, the benefit of it being done in the NHS, I'm aware that a lot of people looking at doing HSCT won't necessarily have that. But they have to look at self-funding, which... I, and I know if I had been in that position having to self-fund, I can't imagine the kind of stress that goes into that. I mean, since, since doing the vlog, a number of people were sort of message and they asked me questions like, like I know things. Um, and they talk about having to fundraise and, you know, doing Kickstarters and doing sort of charity of like all those kinds of events. And I can imagine that being a, an all consuming stress that I fortunately didn't have to do. So for me, it was just concerns with family. That was, that was, that was my big one. And that sort of remained my big one throughout the entire process. Um, so going back to the referral process, what was that like? Obviously, your health professional mentioned it to you. Um, was that right? Or Yeah, yeah. so um, I think in my initial discussions, and I, you have to forgive me, the memory's kind of fuzzy. Memory, not good. Um, but I think I talked about it with my MS nurse, and I explained, because so MS nurse asked after the failure on second Lemtrada what I wanted to do. I then saw the neuro, and we agreed I was going to try the third round of Lemtrada. Uh, when that happened, saw the MS nurse again, and she referred me to uh, a consultant neurologist in uh, Dereford called uh, Professor Hobart, uh, who I think doesn't, I wouldn't say pushes HSCT, but he's a kind of advocate for the benefits of that treatment. And so she referred me there, which effectively trained, changed my entire treatment team up to Dereford. Uh, I went to go and see Professor Hobart. I went to go and see the people that that do the chemo, um, mm -hmm. and she then, they explained... Um, all the all the more specific risks so it was like an it was like a 45 minute appointment they were really welcoming it, when i went went to dereford for that meeting 
Um, I was only the second person that was going to be having HSCT there for HSCT for MS. I was the second person. So I went up there. Um, they, you know, they put a side room aside for us. They gave me coffee. They, they, they were very, very nice and very, very supportive. Um, and they explained all the risks that would go along with having that kind of chemotherapy treatment across all the different stages from your first round right the way through to isolation at home and the diet you'd need to be on, all that kind of stuff. And to be honest with you, it was a huge amount of information for me to take on board. Um, and I took on board very little of it. Um, but again, thankfully, my wife was there and she was able to sort of talk me through it again afterwards, again and again and again. But um, yeah, it was those stages. And then we booked in a time for me to go and do it. Uh, there was some level of discussion and negotiation around when I would go in. They were keen to get me in as early as possible. Um, I asked to delay my treatment ever so slightly by a few months uh, because obviously it was wedding season and being treated in June would cost me an awful lot of money. Whereas if I could get treated in sort of late September, it would be quite different. Um, you mentioned that you were, was it the second person with MS that was treated um, yeah. with HSCT? Was that kind of something that you thought about a lot after they'd mentioned that to you or...? Um, not really, no, to be honest, because I mean, uh, Professor Hobart had told me that they were a fairly new centre for, for doing HSCT for MS. And he was the one that had talked to the team in terms of coming up with all the um, all the processes that they were going to put in place and the way in which the treatment was going to be given, all of the sort of stages that were going to be involved. So I knew I was the second one, but they were very upfront about that. And they explained why they did everything. And it because they'd been giving HSCT to people with cancer um, for, uh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't concerned about it in any way. Um, what was interesting, obviously when I had the treatment, I was in for a while that I was told about some of the differences, the way in which MS treat, uh, MS patients tend to present by comparison to cancer, to cancer patients, um, which I found really interesting, but there were no concerns per se about being number two as it were. Um, so you mentioned earlier about how you felt lucky that you could get it on the NHS and obviously in the UK and some people um, we know go to Mexico or Russia or um, various places abroad for this sort of treatment was that something you'd thought about if you potentially had to go abroad and um, would you have like continued with the treatment or was it something you hadn't really thought of? Uh, when the treatment was first mentioned, it was it, the referral. It was kind of clear that it was going to be NHS. So I didn't have to think about that for very long. We did discuss it. Um, we talked about what we would do if that were the case. I mean, financially, it would have been obviously a huge, it's a huge amount of money wherever, wherever you go and how much it costs by comparison to what it would cost private in the UK or whatever it costs the NHS. It's a huge life changing amount of money. So we thought about it. We thought about how it might impact finances in terms of remortgaging the house, using up whatever savings we had, that kind of thing. But as I say, well, I, I know I know how fortunate I was to get it on the NHS. I really, really do understand that. And um, when when people comment like on, on the vlogs and stuff and they talk about having to the fundraise and, and they sort of talk about how big a decision it is for that kind of thing, I, there's such a, an extra factor to have to think about. Well, I just had to think about whether or not I was going to do it. And but to have to think about that, and I'm thinking about how it's going to impact my family, and then there's somebody else in that position who's going to have to think about how it's going to impact their entire family financially as well. So, but yeah, I, I I didn't have to do it, which which I know I'm really lucky with. Um, so with your vlogs, what were sort of the thinking behind creating some of those? Uh, so when I I knew I was going to be going in for HSCT, uh, obviously because I work I work as like a freelance camera operator and editor, so I wanted to see vlogs. I wanted to see what people were doing. I, I tried to read blogs and and I found them interesting, but the, the, I kind of need that visual component to really engage with something. And then I read even when like you read sort of information on certain websites, they try to make it really user friendly. I think they're not quite understanding how simple a user I am. And so I wanted to see somebody talking about it. 
and there wasn't a huge amount out there. Um, I mean, there was a few vlogs of things, but they weren't like consistent all the way through the journey. And a lot of the time it was shot on a phone, stuff up somebody's nose, that kind of thing. And I thought it would, it would give me something to do while I was in there. Um, it would give me something to focus on. Um, and if I could provide a resource that might be of even the tiniest benefit to one other person, then it's absolutely worth me doing while I'm in hospital with not a lot else to, to spend my time on. Yeah, it makes a change from reading sort of Closer magazine or something, a bit more productive. It does, it does. I haven't read Closer magazine for a while, but yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly what you mean. Uh, yeah, HSC, being, being in that room um, for sort of five weeks in my isolation room, it's an unusual thing. You know, it's, it, it, I, you're, you're, in, you're in a bed for, for that amount of time with very little else to do. And all these incredibly well-trained and very lovely medical professionals come in and, and they, they give you food and they take your food away and they, they get you to stand up so they can clean your bed. You have no other concerns aside from being in that room. And there's a kind of there's a kind of guilt in, in being there and having all these people rush around and fuss after you like that. So filming the vlog, I mean, I was, I was editing weddings and stuff as well, but filming the vlog gave me something to focus on. And, and it, it, was, it was a fun distraction, which I hope is useful to someone. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. I know when we came across them at the Trust, um, we thought they were really good and really interesting and informative. That's very kind of you, thank you. Um, so that sort of leads on nicely to my next question of how did you feel during the treatment, sort of both from an emotional and a physical point of view? Uh, so I, the treatment obviously comes in, there's, a, there's three stages, I suppose, to the to the journey of it. Um, you've got your round one when you go in for your first round of chemo, where you're a day patient um, and you go in and do do all that kind of stuff. So you've had your first hit of chemo. Um, and that's that's kind of an unusual thing. Uh, I I didn't feel. I mean, nobody feels good. Um, to be honest, I didn't feel as bad as I thought I was going to. You know, I I and I know I responded reasonably well to this. I'm aware that there are a lot of people who who will be very very sick. Um, I felt a bit rubbish. I felt you know, like not very good, obviously, throughout the day. And on the drive home, um, I took some anti sickness pills, uh, and I didn't take them early enough, so I had to stop in the car, pull over, and, and vomit on the side of the road, and then get back in the car and go home. Um, but that was altogether not too bad. Um, and then obviously in part of that stage, you wait for your hair to fall out. Everybody hopes they're going to be in the number of people. Like there's a very small percentage of people whose hair doesn't come out. I was not in that percentage. So you wash your hair and you look in the sink. And you're like, oh, oh my God, it's like a, like a terrible accident in there. So then you have to shave your head. So that's stage one. And then obviously you've got your activation injections and they do your bloods and they get your stem cells and all that kind of stuff. And then it's back in for your Hickman line. And then for this, this, the inpatient stuff. So there's, there's all the different stages. Physical side, not terrible. Not, it, it was very obviously unpleasant, but not, but not as awful as it could have been. Emotional side, um, I, I was fine. Like I said, forward going horse, like not, not particularly stoic, but dim. And so I just kind of plod on forwards and just kind of, I tried to just kind of get on with it a little bit. But um, knowing what it was doing to my wife to see me looking the way I did, and uh, even more than that, my son, who was uh, who couldn't really get his head around the whole thing. He was old enough to kind of understand that something was not good and that daddy didn't look right, but not old enough to really understand exactly what was going on. Uh, and that was um, that was emotionally very, very, very difficult. Um, and for those people that haven't sort of watched your video, how old was your son at the time? Just to read that's a very good question how was he so he's six now uh five so he would have just turned four okay he just turned four so we tried to keep him involved with everything in the run-up um we bought him like a he was really into playmobile at the time so we bought him a playmobile hospital and all these little like nurses and doctors and characters and stuff and patients and we tried to explain what was going to be happening to me using those characters um 
and he got it a little bit somewhat uh, and then we tried to involve him again so he was the one who sort of tried to shave my head and we tried to keep him give him as much information as we thought we could handle um but obviously there are limits to to what he can figure out i mean ultimately even if he kind of understands what we've told him being told daddy's not going to be here for six weeks isn't the same as daddy not being there for six weeks um so what were some of the things you found most challenging during the treatment sort of some of the stages maybe you didn't obviously none of it you really loved um but that you really didn't enjoy or some of the bits that you maybe didn't think about beforehand that were a bit of a challenge yeah that's a good question um in terms of particular challenges so like I said I was really lucky I didn't get too sick um in, in terms of uh, obviously being in the hospital for that amount of time and having to being in hospital for that that length of time, I didn't realize it involves like you don't really have any personal boundaries. There's a lot of things that are, you know, you would consider indignities when you're out in the real world and you've got people coming in and picking up all these great big pots of wee and walking out with them, all that kind of stuff. But uh, in terms of when I think to the worst moment of it, uh, the catheter was something that was not what I that, that was worse than I expected it to be. Um, which I think makes me a wimp, really, because my, you know, I've, my wife had to do that after after the you know first ball and all that kind of stuff, and I made a much 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 bigger deal of it than she did. Um, other not so good things, uh, I, I think really it's more of a generalized. It wasn't great. There, the, the experience of being in hospital, uh, hospital foods, um, not seeing family, all those kinds of ongoing things that are constantly in your mind. Um, and I think if you if you let yourself sit in that you don't have other things to distract you i think for me it, that emotional side of it would have been by far the worst bit rather, rather than the treatment itself like the the more physical thing like going into the hickman line that wasn't that bad i know a number of people uh, get quite worried about the hickman line and you know and I, I filmed the entire operation like my wife was filming me while they were they were jabbing and going into my chest all that kind of stuff but that wasn't too bad um Obviously, the chemo, incredibly draining, uh, incredibly tired, uh, not feeling very good generally. Again, I, I didn't get sick, so I know that's a lot worse for other people. Um, and then it's the waiting. Oh, the waiting is so long. that you got you basically, all the chemo is done, all the treatment and stuff, you've got your stem cells back, um, and then you just, you just have to wait for your body to sort itself out and for your numbers to come back up and for them to say you're well enough to go home. Um, and that wait, however long it is, I think mine was about 10 days, it's long. It's a very, very long wait for, for them to eventually tell you can leave. Um, so after all of the waiting and all of that sort of side is done, what um, sort of aftercare did you receive and how did your health professional team manage this? Oh, so aftercare was really, really good. Um, obviously, again, I had the benefit of nurse wife. Um, so when when you leave, they give you the most enormous bag of uh, medication to take, um, antifungals, antivirals, uh, antibiotics, loads of stuff to sort of preemptively protect your body from the infections that you will almost certainly get because you have no immune system. Um, and it's difficult to try and come to terms with the fact that you're going to have to be very, very careful for quite a long time. So even though you're taking those things, you're still, if you go out into the real world, you're going to get sick. You're going to get, you're going to get illness and stuff like that. Um, otherwise uh, it was regular uh, clinic appointments where they would check bloods. Um, so that, then that was all good. If, you know, if you're, if you're big, if you want to incline to moan, sometimes it takes a long time. You know, you go up and you think, oh, I kind of wish they'd arranged it so that I could have my bloods when I first arrive and then they'd be ready for my appointment this afternoon and those kinds of minor niggles. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, like even even though you moan about it, you know that <laughs> it's especially because it's on the NHS, you know that you're receiving something and you're incredibly lucky to be getting it. Um, but they were really regular checking in. The MS nurses, I should say, as well in Derriford were fantastic. They would come in pretty much every single day while I was in isolation. 
which I felt kind of bad about because they'd come in and say, oh, how are things going? How, how are you doing today? And every day was the same. I'm fine. Thank you very much. I'm sorry you had to put on your gown and spend half an hour away from your other other jobs to come and see me. But uh, they were really good. They were really consistent. Um, I really felt like I was actually being looked after. And the the team on the ward uh, on, on Bracken Unit were, were really, really good as well. Um, in terms of the recovery, so what did that look like? Were you like, did you have to stay at home for a considerable amount of time to make sure that you weren't getting those germs from the outside world? I did, yes. So uh, there's, I, I don't know exactly how long you're, I can't remember how long you're meant to be at home. I, I know when I first came home, because uh, my son was was sort of going into, into nurseries and playgroups and stuff. Um, and obviously kids get very ill all the time. They carry like colds and stuff all the time. So that was a bit of a concern being at home. So I spent three or four weeks at my parents-in-law's house, who were literally right across the road, um, and then back home. So I stayed in the house roughly three months you know, went out and did walks and stuff, but I didn't go to places where there were people. Started to pick it up again uh, for the three months following that. I was off work for around five months. Um, and then I was back at work for roughly three weeks before coronavirus started. And then immediately had to go back home and start isolating again for another period of several months. When you went back to work, were there any differences, sort of like different levels of energy or anything that you found? Or was it sort of a little bit more back to normal for the three weeks? uh well it, it, you try and go back to normal uh, i was i was really really fortunate my colleagues were lovely and um they took on a lot of my workload so that when i went back even though i was back and i was back to my normal hours you know i did a sort of a slight phase return but i, I wanted to get back into it quickly um and then very quickly realized that getting back into it even slowly was exhausting and so my, my colleagues were really really helpful and they they picked up a lot of stuff and they sort of, sort of took the slack as it were for me not being quite up to speed um, I think by the time I was sort of ready to go, you know, I was I was back at the, the way I should have been with teaching back at the energy levels was roughly the time that uh, obviously things went a bit strange with the entire world uh, and I had to go home again. Um, so it's been what, sort of 18 months since um, your treatment now, is that right? Or... Two years. Two, Two years. years. Okay. Yeah, yeah, which I hadn't realised it had been quite that long. Um, yeah, so my first round of chemo was I think September 3rd or something, 2019. So uh, yeah, two full years. Um, and sort of have you noticed any differences in that time then? Well, so my understanding is that HSCT obviously, as the norm, doesn't generally make improvements. And again, my understanding is limited. I know that everybody's experience will be different. Um, but if you get improvement, it's really fortunate that it's meant to stop progression. Uh, I didn't. So for six months after the treatment, it's, it's sort of like the treatment roller coaster. So things will get worse while your body is still trying to figure itself out again. Things will be worse for a period of time. And they were like my memory was really bad. My coordination and sort of um, uh, stability were quite poor. Um, my, I think I didn't mention this. My my left leg gives out quite a lot. I've never actually fallen over, but my left leg will sort of give, and I almost sort of stumble. Um, and it was doing that quite a lot. Uh, so it was worse for a period of time. Then it got better. I got back to roughly what baseline was before sort of outside of relapse. A slight uptick in symptoms recently in the last few weeks, but on the whole, things are back to roughly roughly where they were. Based on the the rate of relapse I was having before, I was having a relapse, you know, roughly every year to eighteen months. Um, and so it's been two years now. Uh, and although there's there's an there's a sort of investigation about the current uptick in symptoms, there, there isn't a strong opinion, there isn't a strong feeling that it's likely to be a relapse. And so if it's been two years without relapse, that's really good. That would be my longest period without relapse since diagnosis like 14, 15 years ago. So so that's fantastic. Yeah, that's a big positive then. Um, so yeah. I guess this one, I can probably guess the answer, but if you could go, go back, would you do the treatment again? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I can't really, I can't really consider what the alternative would be. Um, the, 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 the thought of 
for me, and I'm aware this is where I start to get a bit, a bit more morose, a bit more dark. The thought of in 20 years, my, you know, my son and my, my daughter having to have to be my carer in any way capacity or my ability to be a dad and do the things. And the thought of that being inhibited and putting that on them scared me. Um, and so I absolutely wanted to do everything I could to try and make sure that didn't happen. I know that decision's not for everybody, uh, and that and th that's absolutely fair. But for me, that's that's that was kind of my driver. So yes, I would 100% do it again. Even and I, I don't know what the position is in terms of the NHS or whether or not having HSCT a second time is even possible. But if let's say uh, I do have another relapse, I would I think I would probably do the process again in the hope that. It, that it would do the second time what I kind of hoped it would do the first time. Um, so what was it sort of in your own words that you'd hoped it would do the first time? Sorry. What I wanted to do, uh, what I was hoping it would do is kind of what it, it says on the tin for what people describe HSCT in the shorthand, which is that it will hopefully stop disease progression. I, I, I can live with the symptoms I've got. I know I'm very lucky, like I said, lots of, lots of relapses, but no massive life-changing symptoms. If I were fortunate enough to have HSCT and stay in that position, even for a long period of time and slow progression for 10, 20 years, um, that would be amazing. Um, and looking back, was there anything that you would do differently now, knowing what you know now, even if it's something small, like taking another book to the hospital or or it can be something really big as well? Uh, I, uh, I should have prepared. You sent me these questions before and I didn't I didn't I should have thought of something. Honestly, um, no, I, I, don't, I don't think there is anything I would do differently. I, I took in so what I would say is anybody thinking of doing it. Make sure you have lots of things to take with you to keep you entertained. I had an entire season's worth of weddings to edit. So I was kept busy from the moment I woke up until like 10 o'clock at night when I went to sleep, I was busy. But I, I can imagine if I hadn't had that, I can only imagine, you'd go mad in that room. So I was lucky to be kept busy that way. So if I were to do it again, or I would make sure I absolutely had that resource, that thing to be doing. Um, doing the vlog kept me entertained as well. Um, I know there's some people who like write blogs instead as an alternative. I do something different when I do. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, would, I think I'd probably try and do more uh, more for my son uh, in advance. There was a lot of things I did while I was in there, like really dim, silly daddy things. Like, you know, I, I did little silly videos and pretended to do Batman or David Attenborough voices, all this kind of stuff, stuff that would that would make him happy. I would probably do more of that. And I didn't do loads of it because I was tired. And I, sometimes I, I, you know, I thought I've sent that, that he'll be, he'll be fine now. I should have known that better for him would have been to continue sending him a plethora of those kinds of videos to make not just his life, but my wife's life easier as well. So that would be my change. Okay, that's a good one, I think. Um, so are there any questions that you might have asked beforehand if you could go back that you wish you'd sort of explored a little bit more? Uh, I, so again, mine is different. I have a wife to explain everything to me. I know if it had been just me, um, I would have asked them to explain it all to me again and to not feel bad about asking that question. So nobody wants to seem like really, really dim, like they don't understand stuff. Uh, and nobody wants to be, a, you don't want to feel like you're a burden on somebody's time. Um, like, you know, every, you know, all these, the, the medical staff are really busy, um, but I would want to ask for every single explanation again, very slowly. And I would make my own notes as I was going to understand because they give you these little bits of paper and it's all for, like photocopy stuff and it, it looks, looks a bit ropey, but you know, I would make my own notes in an effort to improve my own understanding. Um, so I, basically I would ask not one thing, I'd ask everything twice. Um, so is there anything you've learned about yourself from the process? Uh, that I hate editing my own face, um, primarily. Uh, no, no, in terms, of, in terms of the treatment itself, 
Uh, I don't think there's anything I've learned about myself. Uh, I think I've learned that I sort of the, the strength of the, the people around me was was an enormous factor in my ability to to just get through and just sort of plod on with it. It made a massive difference. Um, and that having things to entertain you, not being inside your own head um, when you're doing that kind of thing uh, is 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 hugely important. Otherwise, I, I think I think the experience if you didn't have something to distract you would send you mad. Um, so HSCT has been in the media quite a lot recently. Um, we've seen that Nicola Chapman Haste, who's a makeup artist and a beauty influencer, and as well, obviously, Selma Blair has um, was shortly releasing a documentary about her journey. Um, are you sort of pleased that the topic's being talked about more widely? And what are your thoughts on those? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, any it, it's an unusual thing to say, but like to have famous people who have to go through you don't you don't hope a famous you don't have anybody anybody gets a mess but to know there's somebody who is famous in the public eye that other members of the public will take note is really really important that's that goes for people those people having ms and raising public awareness generally but the specifying that down to hsct is is obviously even even more beneficial um i know so like there are some people that have been diagnosed that are famous you kind of hope are they going to become a bit of a campaigner are they going to become kind of a face for it and I know that's that's kind of a big responsibility to hope somebody famous will take on board in their life. But that somebody doing that can be of a huge benefit to everybody else who's got the disease. So if Summer Blair, for instance, documentary. Um, yeah, no, I, I've not seen anything from it. I see uh, posts of hers on Instagram um, and the fact that she's been so confident and uh, forward and happy to talk about and be. Uh, allow herself to be vulnerable in the public eye uh, is is a really really big deal, and I I hope it's of a benefit to general public awareness because I know that when I talk to people about having MS, and it's I, to be honest when I, when I meet people I never usually mention it. Uh, I have to know somebody for a very long time before I bring it up, and then when you do bring it up, they get kind of uncomfortable, and then you feel uncomfortable because you made them uncomfortable. So most of the time I just don't mention it. But if you know there's somebody famous they'll have heard of and you can point them towards that and say look this is this is what it is or if even better they've heard of it prior to your conversation it just makes that initial conversation when you discuss it with them much easier yeah yeah I think that's a really good point actually I've got a friend who she because she knows I work at the MS Trust when I see her she's like oh I heard this thing about uh Selma Blair in the news or one of the mums with my kids at school has mentioned MS because one of her friends has got it and yeah it makes the conversation a lot easier yeah, it makes such a difference. It makes such a, like I said, my, my only knowledge of it was that, that there was there was a scene in Family Guy where one of the characters mentioned the head MS and President Bartlett and West Wing. I didn't know anything about it. And it took me a while to get my head around sort of trying to research it for myself. So even I, I would have benefited if there had been someone in the public eye when I was first diagnosed, let alone where I am now, where I have to have those conversations and explain it fresh to, to new people. Um, so just to finish up what tips or advice would you give to other people who might be considering HSCT as a treatment for their own MS? Uh, do as much of your own research as you possibly can um, it, it's those the, the, the kind of studies that my wife looked at may not be for everybody but ask for as many resources as you can from uh, from the staff from your neurologist from your MS nurses that kind of stuff whatever they can give you it, it may not be that you you are able or willing or, or want to engage with all of it but there might be some things that grab you might some things that you can take on board um, yeah, do, finding out as much for yourself will generally makes most people feel more confident. And then when you get to the point where you're going to go and do it, um, plan and prepare as much as is humanly possible. Like I said, for me, it was a case of having lots of stuff to do while I was in there, um, sort of managing family and all that kind of things. But everybody's own circumstance will be different in terms of what's going to be best for them. So consider what your you know, life will be like for six weeks stuck in a single room. Um, what do you need to get through that? 
Uh, I mean, there's nothing you can't really help how your body's going to react to the medication. All you can do is manage how you're going to be mentally while, while you're in there. Brilliant. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you very much. Now, if this was a commercial podcast, here's where there would be an advert. But as we're a charity, we don't do that. So instead, we'd like to take this opportunity to tell you all about our fantastic resources for people with MS. Our website, which is mstrust.org.uk, has tons of information and resources for people affected by MS, including a page on HSCT. You can also visit our YouTube channel to watch a handy video which recaps what HSCT is and how it works. Next up is an interview with Gwen. And unlike Chris, Gwen wasn't eligible to receive HSCT on the NHS. Gwen has got uh, primary progressive MS and at the time found that options were limited in terms of where she could go for the transplantation. Um, so in the end, she settled on Russia and here's what she has to say. So are you able to start off by telling us a little bit about the start of your MS journey, things like your initial symptoms and your diagnosis? Yes, I started getting um, weird symptoms. I had really bad vertigo and um it didn't really go away. So I saw my GP and he thought maybe I had a, an ear infection and I was treated for that, but it didn't help. And then I started getting problems with my legs when I was going walking. I'd be walking along, my legs would just stop working. It was really bizarre. They didn't hurt, they just stopped working. So um, I suspected that I knew what it was because I already knew of somebody who had MS. And so I went to my GP and asked to be referred to a neurologist that took a couple of attempts to, to be re referred um, and then when I was referred I was actually diagnosed quite quickly because of my age um, I had an MRI I had the electrical tests I had a lumbar puncture and my history um, and a very young keen registrar who is really good he, he told me straight away I either had MS or a tumour in my neck and um, when it was confirmed that it was MS, he rang and told me, you know, very quickly. So I was kind of relieved, actually, because I, I was, you know, given the choice, I thought, oh, well, I think I can cope better with MS. And um, initially I thought, I'm just glad it's me and not any of my children and that kind of thing. So um, I wasn't shocked and I wasn't. Um, distraught either I, I just thought well this is something I've got to get on with now yeah so. it, it's kind of if you go through these things you think which is the more easily treatable and things like that then of course I was told that it was um, primary progressive MS um, and that was more disturbing really because they said there was absolutely no treatment for it at that time this was in 2009 um, they said we can possibly help with some of the symptoms that you may have, but there is nothing that we can do to treat the actual disease. Um, basically go away and live your life. And that was it. Did they tell you that you'd got uh, primary progressive MS from the beginning or was that something that sort of they told you MS and then later on it was primary progressive? They it was when, or... when they were first considering it, they just called it MS. But when they rang to say it's definitely MS, they said it was PPMS. I fitted the classic profile for it my age and all of that kind of thing so they, they knew from the beginning that it was PPMS. Um, so you mentioned obviously at the time there weren't really you know disease modifying drugs or certain treatments available to you um, were 
were there any sort of different options that the MS team discussed with you other than those? No, I felt a bit abandoned, to be honest. I wasn't given any um, literature. I wasn't pointed at anybody. They said, oh, we will refer you to an MS nurse eventually. It might take a while. Um, I I was really cast adrift. Um, I probably dealt with it quite well because um, I have a, a science background and I'm used to doing my own research and things like that and as I said I already knew somebody who had MS so um, I kind of just took it in my stride I think a lot of people might have been quite upset (laughs) other people found it harder to deal with them than I did my family found it very difficult to deal with Um, so I was um, having to deal with their emotions more than my own really yeah I suppose that's like another challenge I suppose you don't really think that you'll have to manage that on top of how you feel as well that's right that's right. And um, especially when you're a mother and you, you're used to kind of keeping a lid on your own emotions to keep your own children happy and all of that kind of thing. Telling my my dad was really hard. He was distraught. In fact, quite a lot of relatives. I was, I was going, it's all right. Down the phone, you know. <laughs> was, um, and at the time I was still working. I was busy. I was a busy person. It, it kind of didn't impact too much initially on my life. So I just got on with that. Yeah. Um, so obviously you said, you know, you went away, you weren't really given many resources. At what sort of point did you start to think, hang on a minute, maybe I'll do some research of my own, look into what things are available and sort of come across um, HSCT? That was actually a, a couple of years later. Um, as my disability worsened, I ended up having to be um, medically retired from my job which was very distressing because I loved my job and I worked in a school and it also gave me the time to do more research. And also I started thinking, hang on, there's got to be something. There must be something out there. They they can't just kind of say, no, that's it. So that's when I started doing lots of research. I found all of the, um, any research from around the world, the scientific papers that I could find, I found them and I read them. And I came across a blog by um, an American chap called George Goss, who had had HSCT. That was the first time I'd heard about HSCT. So once I thought there's hope, that's when I really kind of um, dived in and did lots of research about it. I rang doctors, I spoke to haematologists who all thought it was a great idea. The neurologists weren't keen, but the haematologists thought it was a good idea. Um, and it got to the stage when I was choking a lot, I, I, even on just a simple sip of water, um, I was starting to panic about the way it was going. So, and I always thought, well, there is no other treatment. This is obviously going to get worse. I may as well go for it if I possibly can find somebody to do it. And that was the problem, was getting finding somebody who would treat someone with PPMS. Um, And what were some of those reservations that the neurologists sort of had? When I went along to my own neurologist after I thought this is something that I might like to try, she was horrified. She said um, that I would be brought back in a box, that it was something that they only did for people with very advanced MS as a a last-ditch attempt to keep them alive. 
Um, I'd taken printouts of lots of research that I'd done, the peer-reviewed papers and everything, but she just didn't want to read them. And she was very dismissive. I was very disappointed. Um, and I'm glad it didn't put me off, you know, um, because I'd seen a local haematologist, same health trust and everything, and he was saying, it's a perfectly safe treatment. We do this day in and day out for uh, cancer patients. We'd love to do it for people with neurological disorders, but we're not allowed to unless they're um, passed across to us by the neurologist and mine wouldn't. So um, I was forced to look elsewhere. And is that sort of what made you start to look into going, am I right in thinking you went abroad for your treatment? That's right. I went to Russia. Mm-hmm. And that, that's right. Um, I knew that it wasn't available in this country at that time. Um, to my knowledge, there weren't any trials or anything going on in this country. And when I started looking into it, most there are quite a lot of countries that do HSCT um, for a MS, but they're nearly all for uh, relapsing remitting MS. Very few wanted to treat primary progressive. Um, so when I looked around and I rang the doctors and all the rest, there were only two places that were prepared to treat me. One was Russia and one was Israel. Um, the difference between those two is not only price, Russia was a lot cheaper than Israel, but Israel do um, what's called myeloblative HSCT, which is a, a, a lot more severe treatment. It's, it's, it's much more extreme and it's harder to recover from. And I couldn't afford it anyway. So basically the choice was made for me it was Russia or nowhere um, so then I concentrated on um, finding out as much as I could about the treatment in Russia I spoke to other people who had been there I was the third Brit to go to Russia for this treatment so I spoke to the two people who had already been I spoke to other people from other countries who'd been there um, who could tell me about the actual experience of it and that's what convinced me to go for it and um, when they said, well, when you found out you were the third person to go to Russia, was that sort of a mix of excitement that it was like quite a new thing? Or were you a bit nervous, obviously thinking, you know, there's not been that many people before me to go through this? It was kind of nerve wracking. But by that point, I just thought whatever I can do to stop this disease, I was worsening quite fast. So in the case of in the space of three or four years, I'd gone from nursing to an EDSS of five, five point five six on some days um, and I was scared about where it was going you know I still had teenagers at home I wanted to be able to take part in their lives um, and I, I think once I decided I wanted to go I was just desperate to be accepted <laughs> and I wanted to be able to get the money together to do it that was another issue of course is for most people yeah so I guess for you obviously the benefits the potential benefits um, really out, outweighed those risks and any concerns Definitely. I mean, it's important to be really careful about your own um, risk attitude and you've got to be prepared that it might not work and you might have spent all that money and it doesn't work. Um, and you've got to think to yourself, am I, would I, if it, all it does is stop my progression, would I be happy to live like this for the rest of my life? Because you know, depending on how disabled you are, you might think I don't want to stay like this. And you can't assume that there'll be any improvements. So, but I knew I was going to get worse if I didn't go. And that was it. So um, that, that I was 
when when they said yes we can offer you treatment I was so relieved and so happy and it just gave me hope for the first time because I hadn't had any hope since the day I'd been diagnosed really. Yeah um, and then obviously you touched on the money side of things and um, obviously there's travel involved and things what were some of the other um, sides that you had to consider when you were looking into the treatment obviously you had uh, teenage children and things like that to prepare? Yes I was very lucky in that I had total support from my husband. Um, He was a police officer at the time and working shifts and things like that. So he he offered to come with me to Russia, but I said that I'd rather he stayed at home and looked after the house and the children and make sure that that all kept going. Um, And that's what he did. And um, in fact, the, the money for paying for it came out of his pension fund. So, you know, it was... I was lucky in that I had that option. Um, It was quite difficult. We had to organise a visa to go to Russia, which isn't the easiest thing. And I think it's actually trickier now than it was then. Um, But everything else, apart from the flights, was included in in the cost. So at least we could budget for it. It's only a four-hour flight to Russia. I'd never been there before, and I'd never actually flown by myself before either. So it was quite nerve wracking until I got there and I was met at the airport by um, a driver from the hospital. And I just kind of handed myself over into their hands and let them take me, you know, where I needed to go. Um, And I completely relaxed once I got there. I met the doctor who was just, he just um, instills confidence. Um, And they've treated so many people with HSCT from all around the world, as well as their own Russian patients, that it's like a well-oiled machine to them. I felt very safe. That's good. Yeah, that's what you want, obviously, when you get somewhere, if it's an unusual environment as well for you. You don't want to feel... must have been a bit daunting going from sort of NHS, where you know that everything's tied in, and then going across to Russia. How did um, they sort of manage moving across some of your medical information was that something you just had to tell them or yeah it was I I just had to I I had to take any um information that I had in writing from various specialists with me um but they spend the whole of the first few days just testing every single system it was the best MOT I've ever had in my life they told me several things that I didn't know that I had cataracts that I had a gallstone care lots of different things that I hadn't known before very very thorough testing um, before they decide whether they to actually go ahead with the treatment because they want to make sure that you're safe to have it um so that was very reassuring um I just thought they, there wasn't anything that they they didn't test from my eyes right down to my feet <laughs> yeah so at least you feel like although it was expensive to do in that way you got value for money and that absolutely yeah. absolutely you know the MRIs they they everything they and they found things they were saying they have um, a much more intense MRI machine so they found lots more lesions than I knew about from here I was told I had only four or five lesions there they found I had too many to count that kind of thing you know so um, yeah it was just so professional so you mentioned obviously you went to Russia um, because they were one of the 
only two places that treat people with um, primary progressive MS. Were they sort of quite open about discussing what you could expect from the treatment as opposed to someone who might have relapsing remitting? Um, not so much. I don't think there's a difference as, as much as um, a difference in the outcome as there is in the percentage of people that it works for. It works for fewer people who have got progressive MS. And I don't think anybody really understands why that is. Um, the success rate for PPMS is about 70%. For relapsing remitting, it's higher than that. It, it's about 85%. It varies, you know, but that's about what it is. Um, and after I had all my testing, the doctor said to me, he was convinced that it would benefit me. And he recommended that I had the treatment. and I was happy to go ahead with that. Um, so looking now at the treatment, what were some of the emotional and physical uh, changes that you noticed? Like, how did you feel during the process? Were there any sort of cha big challenges? I was really tired all the way through this treatment. I was there for a month and I spent a lot of it sleeping. <laughs> But interestingly, it was, on, it was a bit like being away at boarding school in a way, because there were several other people there, international patients from Australia and America and um, Norway. And we kind of bonded over, over our shared experience. And so when I wasn't actually having treatment, I was mixing with them and talking to them and we kind of took ourselves through it like that so emotionally I felt quite well supported um, physically it wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be because when someone tells you that you're going to have chemotherapy you think oh you know I'm going to be sick I'm going to have terrible tummy troubles and all of that kind of thing um, but none of that happened for me um, there were four days of chemotherapy and I kept waiting and waiting to feel bad. And on the on the fourth day, I felt a bit nauseous, a, a little bit nauseous. And that was as bad as it got, um, as far as the chemotherapy was concerned. Um, later on in the treatment, um, I did have some bone pain when my stem cells were given back and they were engrafting. I did get some bone pain, but you can bear it because you think it's temporary. Um, you know, you know, it's for a purpose, you know, the reason for it. Um, and so it was bearable. I think the most difficult thing I found there was um, maybe the food. Russian <laughs> food in the hospital wasn't great. Um, but again, it was for a purpose. It was, it was meant to nourish you for the, for the reasons you needed nourishing. And, and it was, again, it was temporary. So that was for me it wasn't that bad of an experience at all the actual food outside of the hospital is great I have been back to Russia since to visit and mm. um the food is great it was just the hospital <laughs> but that's the case here too I think yeah yeah I suppose you can't really be too harsh compared no, to yeah some no. of the like dry sandwiches and things you that's get right <laughs> did you have sort of regular contact with your family while you were there um yeah I guess all video the time calls and yes. things went the internet is is fine. I mean, it's not um, a third world country, you know. It's they, they, the internet is fine. I was on Skype and um, WhatsApp the whole time. Um, 
obviously there's a, a time difference so that was a little bit awkward but no it was great and my kids were sending me um funny pictures and things every day to keep me going and I could speak to them you know pretty much whenever I wanted to so that wasn't a problem um and after your treatment what was the care like obviously you would have had to um return to the UK try and um coordinate that back with your neurologist and MS team over here and to obviously link up all the care how did you manage that one before I went to Russia I met with a hematologist as I said before and he offered to care for me when I came back as in to supervise all the blood tests and things like that and to have a plan of action if anything went wrong um nothing did go wrong so I went weekly to start with and then fortnightly and then monthly to my GP where bloods were taken and um, they were passed by the haematologist and it all went fine and a, a couple of months after I came back it was my routine appointment with my neurologist so I went along um, thinking that she'd be thrilled to hear all about my wonderful experience um, and she was really uninterested. It was really sad. I was, I was quite upset, to be honest, because I went in going, ta-da, you know, I wasn't brought back in a box. And um, she said, oh, good, no, that's good, that's good. Let's have a look at you then. And um, fine, okay, then see you next year. You know, it was, I felt so dismissed. I, I, and I thought she wasted an opportunity to learn from my experience, because I was pretty sure that one day it would be coming to this country, which it is now, of course, as you know. Um, and I've never been back <laughs> since then. So in the last seven years, I haven't seen a neurologist. I haven't felt the need to. If I felt that my um, symptoms are worsening or anything like that, then obviously I'd have to go and consult a, a neurologist. But um, that hasn't been necessary. So I'm afraid that's... <laughs> not a very enlightening um, story with the neurology department that's a shame yeah like you say because even if it's a it's an experience to learn uh, an opportunity to learn about different experiences isn't it even if you know you don't personally agree with it it's good to that's have all right. the options for other people that's right and I, I saw the MS nurse once after that as well and she was very interested and wanted to know all about it so I told her and um, I offered to speak to any of her other patients um, who might be interested in this as a treatment, the pros and the cons and the information. Um, but unfortunately, she said they weren't allowed to speak about it. She said, we're not allowed to get tell. If somebody raises it with them, I think they can respond, but they aren't allowed to raise it as a possibility. So that was the end of that as well. Um, she said, um, do you want to make a new appointment? And I said, I don't really see the point, to be honest. Um, she said, well, call if you need us. But other than that, we'll leave it at that then. So, and that's where it's gone. And of course, since then, they have started doing HSCT in this country, um, which is amazing. Um, but it's still quite difficult for people to get accepted for the treatment. They're, they're quite restrictive in their acceptance criteria. So still, most people go abroad for HSCT. And for you, if you'd had that option, you know, they'd said either try, you know, there weren't necessarily treatments available for you at the time other than HSCT. But if they'd said, you know, tick these boxes first 
and then you can have it on the NHS or, you know, you still had the option to go to Russia and pay for it. What do you think you might have done if that was an option? It would have been a big decision. And of course, it's really hard to ignore everything that I've learned between then and now. Um, but now I think I would still choose to go abroad. I often say to people that if one of my children was diagnosed, I'd want him to go um, to either Russia or Mexico, which is another um, really good HSCG facility, because they have the experience. They do it day in, day out. You're not kind of held wondering whether you'll get a bed or whether that's going to be taken for an emergency cancer patient, because they're, they're specific facilities just for people with MS. Um, and also the protocol is slightly different here in the UK. And although it's effective, they, it seems to me that they, I, I really hate to say things against the NHS because I'm a huge fan of it, but they have more problems with infection than they, than they do in Russia and Mexico, um, which of course you don't want when you've had your immune system blasted. Um, so, Although it goes against the grain, I would say I would still go abroad. Yeah, that's right. And um, talking about obviously your immune system being weakened and having to be extra careful, when you returned to the UK, was there sort of an isolation period that you had to be really careful for or stay inside or anything like that? I was so tired when I came home that I think I slept for the first month anyway, pretty much. But you do have to be careful. It takes a good six months for you, for you to be able to kind of eat without thinking about um, the safety aspects of your food um, for infection risks and things like that. A lot of people don't and they're fine, but I was very cautious. I wore a mask when I went out for the first month or so. Um, I didn't have anybody coming to the house for the first month. Obviously, my teenage children were still here and, you know, I had to put up with everything. But um, they didn't bring friends back that first month or so as well. A bit like everybody's been going through with the COVID thing, really, um, except it was just me, <laughs> just me taking care rather than everybody. So yeah. um, it wasn't too bad. I've always been a bit, I, I used to work in microbiology and things like that. So I've always been very cautious about hygiene and things like that. So it was fine I didn't get any infections so that was fine yeah that's yeah. good it's almost like you had a little bit of a warm-up not that you'd necessarily want it but a warm-up <laughs> for lockdown you kind of knew how to handle welcome it to my world yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right yeah. yeah so obviously yeah. it's been yeah seven years since you had the treatment have you what sort of changes have you noticed to the progression of your MS or just any changes in general in that time when I was actually going through the treatment I noticed that um, my fatigue and my brain fog improved as I was going through the treatment it was the most bizarre feeling it was like a veil lifting away I could think in sentences I couldn't string a sentence together before I went oh, it's a bit hard to believe now but, but <laughs> and so I thought oh it's working I've already noticed that there's a positive change it's working um, and then after I came home um, I noticed that I didn't have to I'd stopped taking tablets for things like my bladder urgency and things like that before I went because I didn't want anything to interfere with the treatment. Um, and then I and I noticed, oh, I don't need to start taking them again. And if, gradually my foot drop um, improved. I, so 
only if I'm kind of very tired or whatever now that it happens where I, I used to have to wear a brace all the time on, on one foot. I had an intention tremor before I went. I couldn't like, pluck my eyebrows or anything like that without shaking and that's gone. So lots of the choking, oh, the choking. Um, it didn't go away immediately. I had to be, still had to be careful. But now I can actually have a meal or a drink with other people around without being frightened to death that I'm going to choke or anything like that. So that is a huge benefit to me. My, my mobility is still not great. Um, it's about the same as before I went. But there are so many little things that have improved that it was worth it. Even if I hadn't had these improvements, it would still be worth it because I'm not any worse. And I'd worked, and I deteriorated so much in the first four or five years of the disease that I'm pretty sure I would be in a, a really sorry state by now if I hadn't had HSCT. I haven't had the, the marvellous improvements that some people have, but I think that's really important not to expect that. I, I kind of try to emphasise that to people if I speak to them about it. I say it's not 100% guaranteed to work in the first place, so you've got to be prepared that you've gone through all that and not benefited. Um, but if you can accept that, then the next thing is you've got, you've got to hope that it just it stops the um, deterioration and that you're not going to get any worse. Can you live like you are now? That's the second thing. And if they say, yes, I just don't want to get any worse, and they accept that there's a chance that it might not work, then it, it might well be the right treatment for them. There's a lot to go through. It scares me sometimes how many people just look at the the shining stars who have come through and now can run on beaches and things and think that's going to be them, you know. So I do try to caution people. But I'm a big fan of the treatment. It's a, I've spent a lot of time since I came back. I um, helped to set up um, Facebook groups to help people with information about how to go about getting HSCT and what is involved and why it works and all of that kind of thing. So I spend a lot of time doing that now. Um, and for you, obviously, you know, you said you need to be, uh, other people need to consider what they would do or how they'd feel if the treatment didn't work as well as they'd hoped. If you'd found that the treatment didn't work, did you sort of have a, a backup plan? Would you have just sort of carried on or would you maybe try to I don't know if you can do a second round of HSCT or anything you can but not very many people do mm-hmm. um but it is possible and they do a different protocol um at the time I didn't know that I thought you know it was either it worked or it didn't but I did know that um if there was an initial good response to it and then you kind of lapse back that you could have more chemotherapy or more of the monoclonal antibody and sometimes it can kick um, the disease back into remission so that's what I would have tried first if I'd had any kind of worsening symptoms I would have spoken to the doctor who did my HSCT Dr Fedorenko and I would have asked him what he recommended and then I would have gone with what he recommended Um, and if necessary for instance, now, seven years on, I'm fairly certain that it's not going to happen. But if, if, if I did have some kind of worsening, I would go and have HSCT again if I could afford it. It was, it, you know, I would. It, it wasn't um, so bad that I wouldn't want to do it again. And, you know, hey, I've got seven years out of it. It's, it's, um, it's, it, for me, it was a lifesaver, I think. 
And did they give you any information on sort of how long they'd expect the effects to last? Did they say, you know, this is a 10 year thing or is it just go away and see how you get on? Pretty much that. Yeah. Um, Dr. Federenko emphasises that, you know, he, he says good, good food, good mood and uh, good exercise. So he, you know, he, he is he is convinced that a lot of it is about your own attitude to it. If you expect it to work and you do the you know, whatever you can to get better physically and things like that, then you're giving yourself the best chance. If you go into it thinking it's not going to work, then who knows, maybe it won't be successful. You know, nobody quite knows. The, the brain is a powerful thing. Um, so, yes, of course, in the first year or two after treatment, every time any, you know, if I got a cold or something and, I, and, I, and all my symptoms came back, I, I would be thinking, oh no, oh no, it hasn't worked, oh no. Um, but then as the cold went up and my symptoms would go back again. And um, of course, once you hit five years, it's a bit like, um, you kind of think I'm in remission now. I don't, I don't ever think I'm cured because I've still got so many symptoms, but I think I'm in remission. And hope, you know, long may it last. Um, so if you could go back and would there be anything you'd do differently? So, you know, sometimes you get... Um, to the recovery sort of stage like you say when you're in the hospital for about a month and you might have thought oh I wish I'd asked this question before so I'd know what to expect in this sort of aspect of things or I think I did a pretty good job of um, investigating before I went I can't really think the only thing that I wish I'd known about was that they use steroids during the treatment and I'd never used steroids before um, because I've not never had relapses and I didn't know that taking steroids um, puts you at risk of developing a vascular necrosis, which is a bone condition. Um, I didn't know about that. And I'm one of the unfortunate ones that did go on and get a vascular necrosis. So if I'd known that in hindsight, I would have said, is there any way of minimising the amount of steroids we can use in the hope that it wouldn't affect me that way? that is the only thing the only regret I've got really is not having known about it earlier before I had all of the disabilities that I have you know if I'd known about if I'd been diagnosed and they'd said there's this treatment called HSCT I would have looked into it then I, I feel a bit bitter about that to be honest I really think people should know about, even if it's not available in this country if there is a treatment somewhere anywhere in the world that could benefit you I think patients should be told about it obviously you've done um, a lot of work to try and raise awareness of it if you were diagnosed maybe now um, and you were looking around do you think there's more resources out there to help people do you think there has been an improvement in that time yes I do I do and um, people like at the MS trust and things uh, they've included HSCT in their literature and things now and I think that is helpful whether it's enough for people to to catch the I I don't know but certainly there's a lot more online now there are lots more patient groups and as the numbers of people who have been treated increases there are several thousand now um, people are more confident in going for it because they especially if they haven't got a science background and don't understand how it works really they, they they're just going on whether other people have benefited really so um yeah, I think there is more out there and there are more places to get it done now as well. Um, even for PPMS, it's, there are more options. It's always nice to have options. So um, it is getting better. I think the 
I think the NHS could do a lot better, but I think they're hamstrung with, with um, money issues. Um, I think they want to do it. But yeah, there's only so much you can do with limited resources, isn't there? It's That's a right. But when you yeah. think that, you know, how many people there are with MS in this country and there's only a couple of hundred that have been treated here with HSCT, it's not great, to be honest. If you... Um, we're speaking to someone, as you, I'm sure you regularly do, um, who was considering HSCT as a treatment for their own MS. What top tip or piece of advice would you give them? Do your research. That is what I would say. Um, it's not the holy grail. It isn't a miracle cure. You have to decide whether you think it would benefit you. If you don't do it, will you regret it afterwards, thinking I didn't try everything I could? I'm very surprised and impressed at how many people go very soon after diagnosis these days when they obviously haven't got much disability and so they they aren't as aware of how bad things can get but yet they're grabbing that baton and going for it and getting their lives back if you go soon enough it's like you never had MS in the first place sometimes so um I, yeah, do your research. There are a lot of scams. It's very important to, to um, do your due diligence and find out where is the best place to go. People will take your money if you're not careful and for no benefit. So it's important to get, go to the right places, to the legitimate places. And have you over time sort of learned what some of these scams look like if they've got any like really obvious trademarks for people that are looking or? Yes, they tend to call themselves stem cell treatments. Whereas HSCT, the, the stem cell bit is a bit of a, a red herring in a way because it's the chemotherapy that actually does the work of HSCT. Um, so just being offered stem cell treatment is not going to do anything. Um, there are lots of very plausible sounding clinics out there who say we can give you stem cell treatment and it will help your MS. But it doesn't. Unless you, there's chemo chemotherapy involved it's not going to work um, so that's what I would say to look out for is there chemo but if you just had some kind of stem cell treatment without the chemotherapy you've not stopped the attacking cells it'd be a bit like um, if your house is on fire um, and you started painting it again before you had the fire put out you know yeah, that's, that's, really that's how I kind of put it so the chemotherapy is the most important part of it really but it's very difficult unless you have got some kind of scientific knowledge not to be if someone's there telling you, yes, we can help you. People get desperate. People do get desperate when they have MS. And especially if they're offering it for a much lower price than HSCT is available for. You know, it's um, it is it's a lot of money, but there's no point in spending a lower amount of money for something that's not going to work at all. You know, because yeah. you've wasted hope, you've wasted time, you've wasted money. It's... um. Yeah, that's why like, I say do your research yeah definitely you know those um scam programs on the tv always say you know if it looks too good to be true it probably is so absolutely but yeah. people want to believe that's yeah. why they fall for it <laughs> so um thank you so much for speaking with us today Gwen you're very welcome thank you Gwen touched on some of the limitations accessing HSCT and how options can vary depending on what form of MS you have here. Um, we still got Claire with us. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about what sort of things that make people eligible for HSCT on the NHS? 
at the moment, um, AHSCT is available in a very small number of places in the UK. Um, but we think that's likely to change in the, in the very near future as there's a big clinical trial rolling out, which will mean that the people, a lot of, uh, can get AHSCT at a number of different hospitals all over the UK. Now, unfortunately, the eligibility criteria for this trial are really, really narrow. Um, and that's also the case for eligibility for AHSCT on the NHS more generally. Trials so far have found that this kind of stem cell treatment does not work as well on primary progressive or secondary progressive MS as it does on relapsing remitting MS. And even within those people with relapsing remitting MS, it works best on very highly active, rapidly evolving relapsing remitting MS. And in the, and probably best of all, in the first 10 years on that recent diagnosis. So for that reason, um, NHS hospitals aren't treat, are, are looking at that just that very narrow range of people. Mm. So uh, largely, it's going to be people who haven't been diagnosed with for very long. They've been diagnosed with relapsing remitted MS, and they have continued to have relapses even when they're taking a disease modifying drug. Um, and some some centres were even until very recently, only looking at people who had failed on some of them, you know, continue to have relapses, even on some of the most powerful disease-modifying drugs that are currently available. In the clinical trials that are coming up as well, the, um, the, there's also eligibility about how disabled you can be before you know, to, 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 to be eligible for the trial. And they're looking at the EDSS scale, which is um, the, the way that we often measure the impact of disability. On people and typically you need to be still able to walk unless you've recently had a very powerful relapse which is temporarily um could cause that cause you to be under, under unable to do that and you have to be basically quite fit i think in order to undergo the treatment regime itself it's not it's not risk-free um hospitals tend to give a percentage mortality rate of one percent now that's not just where um, stem cell treatment has been used on people with MS, that's where stem cell treatment has been used across the board. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly recent clinical trials haven't had 1% mortality, they've had much less than that. But it's still a, a difficult and dangerous procedure to go through, potentially. Yeah. You are leaving yourself at risk um, of infection. You essentially, for a short time, you don't have an immune system and you have to regrow it. And there's a there's potential side effects like um, developing a different autoimmune condition, for example, something like um, you know thyroid problems, for example. So it's not for everybody, but um, if you are thinking about it, then doing then getting involved with something like the Star MS clinical trial, which is about to be about to start recruiting, is probably the best and safest way to go through it. Mm. I think it's interesting, you know, I've worked for the MS Trust quite many years. And when you first started hearing about stem cell treatment, um, and they, I think what Gwen was talking about, what, when, that there is a lot, was a lot of sort of fake claims of, of stem cell treatment, let they say, rather than HSCT. 
out there. And there was a big worry. You know, there were places, I seem to remember there was somewhere in Holland that was a um, big scandal about what they were doing. And, and, and it, there was a big worry. So there's a lot of people that were worried about it. I think it's great to see what sort of has changed and what has happened in, in, in a sh quite short time, really. Um, I thought it was very upsetting to listen to Gwen's um, interview when she was talking about the NHS and, and, and the sort of reactions that she had from her neurologists. And I think I, I like to hope that things have changed since then. I, when I did an interview recently uh, for our YouTube channel with uh, Dr. Charmilly at um, Barts, she spoke about when they try to refer uh, people to stem cell treatment, but she, that she also has had private patients that um, have had it done somewhere else, like in Russia, and that she does sort of see as follow up afterwards. Um, because that's really valuable, I think, isn't it? Because yeah. um, if you can, it, it's not just the one off that you then put behind you and get on with life um, yeah you're going to need to, con to be continually supported by an ms team who need to be aware of what's happened mm. so, and also probably rheumatology and you know all sorts of other services um in the nhs so it's not um it's certainly not an end to your in you know your interactions with the nhs yeah um so we know that a lot of people do travel every year to have this treatment overseas and i think it's as long as you're looking for um, really well accredited um, institutions, you know, there's the uh, JACIE, which stands for the Joint Accreditation Committee, um, ISE, you know, for, for, for this. And they have to show, so that's basically a, a kind of a sort of an international regulatory standard that, that, that gives you some confidence that the, that the organization that's offering that to you is, mm. you know, is, is legitimate. If people um, are thinking about doing it abroad, um, I mean, obviously there is a lot of information on our website about the, the, the treatment in itself, but I mean, we, we get people coming contact to the information team and also asking questions. And I think, you know, Gwen kept on saying, do you research, do you research? And I think that is the really important thing to take away if you are thinking of doing it um, somewhere else. Absolutely. And I think there's a growing community of people who have undergone stem cell um, transplantation either in the UK or abroad and can share with you a, gr a great deal of um, you know really useful information that yeah. can help you with your personal decision but I think as I say because we've got the STAR MS trial starting in the UK and that's going to be really big and across certainly England, Wales and Scotland um, particularly I think if that, that, that does open up open up the doors and put the possibilities for people because of course once this is even once that trial's finished, there'll then be hospitals all over the country who have who have delivered this treatment to people with yeah. MS and will have the confidence to um, to understand what kind of patients will benefit from it and who they might consider putting forward to it. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see um, to see more more availability. Yeah. Of course, if you do join a clinical trial, you're not guaranteed to get that treatment. No. Um, the Star MS trial is putting stem cell transplantation up against treatment with some of the most powerful disease modifying drugs that we currently have licensed mm -hmm. in the UK. So I think it's a really that's a really important thing to know, isn't it? You know, what are yeah. the um how much better or worse or how does it work um in compare in comparison to the options that people currently have. Yeah. When once neurologists and people with MS and you know 
the NHS understand a little bit more about that, then there'll be less of that uncertainty that you talked about, Helena, about yeah. you know whether it's something that you should be considering. I think it would be great once people have been recruited, if somebody is on that trial and they happen to have listened to this podcast, get in touch with us because we'd love to, to talk to, to them and find out what it's all about and how it's all working. Um, because I do, you know, I think the more we talk about it, the more, the more interest. And um, obviously a lot of people who have said the criticism is that they haven't, they haven't known about it. They haven't heard about it. Um, so, I've, but I think things are going to change now because certainly it's, um, it's not a hidden thing. <laughs> no, no, indeed. I mean, it's still the case that people with um, secondary progressive or primary progressive MS might well feel um, hmm. quite disappointed about that. The, but at least if they start with the, you know, those, those people with MS who are most likely to respond well, then that will probably lead to the research expanding. Yeah. But if we started with a very broad um, collection of people with all different kinds of MS at all different stages, um, then the research would, would be less powerful in, in telling us what we need to know about about HSCT. So that would probably tend to shut down further research. We're going to put lots of information in the show notes. So have a little look. If you are thinking about this or you want to do more research, then there's lots of information there. And we'll pop some links to some of the um, organizations that talk about it as well. And maybe even some of the Facebook groups um, that Gwen mentions as well. Um, I've known Gwen for a while in the Facebook, in our Facebook group, uh, who's been an advocate. So it was great to hear her voice um, because, you know, we've just seen her typing before uh, and it was very interesting to hear both her and Chris's story, I thought. Yeah, and we'll also include um, a link to Chris's blogs on his HSCT journey in the show notes as well. Mm, his videos are great, uh, really interesting. Um, so remember that if you have any questions about MS, we're here for you. Our inquiry service is available Monday to Friday except UK bank holidays and that's from 9am to 5pm. Outside of these hours, you're welcome to leave us a message and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. And you can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter and Instagram. And you can find this podcast on Spotify, Google and Apple Podcast and Amazon Music. Get in touch and like they say, like and subscribe. And as always, we also like to say a big thank you to Anne Chapman Audio for the music for this podcast. <laughs>